Well, as we've been hearing in the news this morning, thousands of people, mostly men in black military fatigues, have been marching in a funeral procession through Baghdad for Iranian General Qassem Soleimani. Iran vowing harsh retaliation for the American airstrike that killed the head of the Iran's elite force yesterday. A U.S. intelligence assessment says Iran will almost certainly retaliate overseas against U.S. and Israeli officials and interests. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff telling ABC News that risks of inaction exceeded risks of action and that now the ball is in the Iranian court. That was reporter uh, Ian Pennell. Let's now bring in to chat more about this and uh, a few other things of international importance. Uh, Matthew Fisher, who's an international affairs columnist, also a foreign correspondent. He has worked abroad for about 35 years. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, you're very welcome. Good morning. Uh, I know you've written uh, a piece, a special for Global News, uh, starting off talking about uh, the U.S. and the strike uh, that killed uh, the leader of that Revolutionary Guard unit. Uh, What do you think or what is your response to how the response has been and what's happening now? I think there's a lot of fear and uncertainty about what lies ahead, and it is justified, very justified. This was a very dangerous man and uh, a man who was hugely popular among the fanatics in Iran. We have to separate them from all those people who loathe the regime in Iran. Uh, But uh, all those with power loved him. He was a, a, a very particular character in that he was not only a general directing global terrorist operations, Uh, But he was also a diplomatic envoy uh, to all of Iran's dubious friends, to Hezbollah in Lebanon, to Bashir al-Assad in Syria, to Iraq's uh, Shia militias, to some of the most malevolent elements in Afghanistan. Uh, Every attachment that he had was evil. And in a way, it's shocking that he was allowed uh, to live so long and so openly, because unlike bin Laden, and these other terrorists, he led a very public life. He didn't hide himself. He did TV interviews, uh, showed up at airports. And <clears throat> in fact, he got killed uh, being very brazen, arriving at an airport where actually there were U.S. troops present. And he had to know that there were drones overhead. He thought nobody would touch him because of his relationship with the Iranian government, and that that somehow protected him. Obviously, finally, after many years of evil deeds, it did not. And what do you take of the the U.S. response or the explanation saying that he was planning an attack against the U.S. and that's why it was so important to do this now? Well, of course, he has been planning attacks and carried them out against the U.S. for many years. Uh, it is believed that he has personally directed the the murder uh, of at least 600 uh, Americans, uh, most of them uh, soldiers. So uh, what is the difference right now? Well, I don't think there is a qualitative difference. Uh, If I were being cynical, I'd say to you that uh, the timing is convenient for Donald Trump because he's facing an impeachment inquiry. And politicians often in the democracies, when they face trouble, find a a way to do something else that diverts attention 
this is a chance for him to wrap himself in the U.S. flag, something he literally did on his Twitter feed yesterday. Uh, one of his tweets was just the U.S. flag, and he's attaching himself to this, and it will probably work, at least in the short term, uh, in terms of uh, uh, American support, political support, which have been wavering a bit, even among his base in the United States of late, uh, perhaps because of the impeachment proceedings against him. And he had to know, or the U.S. had to know, that there would be a promise of retaliation. How do you see that playing out? Well, that's the big question. How will it play out? I don't think these are folks that can go toe-to-toe with the United States militarily. Uh, Their Air Force, almost all of it, is Vietnam-era U.S. warplanes. Uh, uh, Their Navy isn't much to speak of. Uh, They have some potent anti-ship missiles that will make problems uh, for the U.S. Navy and for uh, oil tankers operating through the Strait of Hormuz and and in the Persian Gulf. That's why oil prices went up quite a bit uh, yesterday. Uh, uh, They could swarm some U.S. warships with small craft. I think the Americans probably have countermeasures for that. I expect what we'll see mostly, because it's easier to do, uh, is terrorist attacks. Uh, There may be Hezbollah doing something against Israel, Hezbollah's in Lebanon, uh, or Hezbollah going to Europe, where they've operated before, to carry out terrorist attacks. A bit harder to do in the U.S., but they can target U.S. embassies and U.S. officials almost everywhere. And also Westerners, tourists, generally Canadians, have to watch out. I don't think our soldiers in Iraq face particular risks because they're in well-defended bases. But there is a separate uh, problem. We have a lot of oil workers in Iraq, particularly in northern Iraq. Uh, they don't have much protection, so they would be vulnerable. Uh, Canadian tourists, Western tourists that go to places such as Dubai, uh, they will be quite uh, exposed too. All right. I wanted to talk to you as well. We just got a a couple of minutes left. In the piece that you've written, you've also touched on the growing dispute between the United States and China and where Canada falls in that as well. Here we are in 2020. Meng Wanzhou is still being held. How do you see that kind of going into the new year? Well, something that is to China's benefit with this attack uh, in Iraq is that not only does it divert attention for Donald Trump, but it also diverts attention away from China and all of the things it is up to. Uh, The disputes, multiple disputes that it has with Canada, other disputes with countries such as Norway and Japan that have had very little play in Canada. And uh, so I think it will further embolden China, uh, give them a longer leash to cause mischief, to bully uh, in South uh, East Asia and assert themselves uh, in Africa, in Latin America. Uh, they're on a big building spree with uh, their Navy in particular. All of this will be easier for them now. Uh, and they were going to do it anyway. I just think we're going to see more of it. And that is the real challenge. The United States diverting attention, but also military resources once again to the Middle East after those long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and now we have it happening again. Meanwhile, China's like the kid in the weight room. It's, he's just bulking up all the time for a future conflict. Well, the United States is expending a lot of energy on these pursuits in the Middle East.
Uh, do you think that we'll see a different uh, position or even a shift when it comes to, uh, say, if we're looking at the Canadian government and its approach with China and the Canadian public in general? Well, the Canadian public are more and more opposed to what China is up to. That's clear, but we've seen no indication that the government does not want to continue its unilateral, unrequited love affair with China. Uh, It's my opinion that we abase ourselves before China, trying to get a trade deal while China says terrible things about us, kidnaps our citizens, uh, and generally is abusive and uh, they get away with it because the government wants so badly to have a trade deal. It leaves me scratching my head. There's the whole Huawei 5G question. Canada, will they allow uh, that technology? And if so, China will be delighted, but it will cause huge frictions with the United States. All right. Uh, Matthew Fisher, we will leave it there, but thank you so much for writing the piece and thanks for joining us this morning. You're most welcome. Talk to you again. Time to take a look ahead and uh, predictions for this year, even beyond this year. Joining me on the line is uh, Nicholas Badminton. He is a futurist. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's go through some of the the predictions you've made or some of the areas that you focus on and what we're going to to see moving forward. Climate change, certainly a big issue last year or the years years past. What do you think is going to be the big shift or the big focus when it comes to uh, the climate in 2020? Yeah, so in, in 2020, we, we're really waking up to some pretty catastrophic sort of effects of the warming of the planet. I mean, looking down in Australia right now, things are pretty terrible down there. In BC, over the, over the past few years, there's obviously been wildfires there, also down in California. And, and, and all of this is sort of part, part and parcel of the, the planet warming, things getting drier. You know, drier places in the world uh, are going to get drier. Wetter places are going to get wetter. And we're seeing like flash floods in Jakarta and places like that that are worse than ever before. <clears throat> so we've woken up. We really have woken up. And even the people that are denying that climate change is real and that it's human made today are really starting to really question that sort of extreme uh, point of view. <clears throat> so we're waking up and we're starting to step into a new world where renewable energy is going to really start to gain pace. Uh, places, even places like Alberta that have been very much about the fossil fuel economy are starting to implement you know, massive wind farms and solar, looking at geothermal and whatever. You know, we've still got the opportunity in Canada to be a huge energy country. And I just think that that's going to be redefined in the next sort of five to 10 years to be around renewables. And I think that we're going to see that trend uh, knock on into the States and also across the world as well. Uh, do you think there will be a shift? Because you mentioned too, even people that, that are a bit uh, in the denial part sure. of the conversation. And I'm sure I'll even get an angry email from this conversation because there are people who will still say it has nothing to do with climate change. Uh, this is just the natural cycles of the planet. You, you know, I, I do dozens of, uh, of talks every year and I, I always have open Q&As and I always have people that are, that are sort of challenging some of these points. Uh, the fact that the science is irrefutable, it, it's very clear to everyone that this, this industrial age that we've sort of been building over the last 260 years is based on fossil fuels and that has contributed to the world warming. It's not a natural flow of, of world events. It's, we've had some of the warmest days that we've ever had over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, scientists all the way back to the early 1970s were predicting what we have today and it's because of the pollution that we put out into, into the air. So, you know, people can still deny, but they're wrong. 
and I tell them very clearly that they're wrong. And and fundamentally, time time will show them that they're completely wrong about this. So you know the, the progressive uh, thinkers, the innovators, the scientists. Uh, you know, government leaders, uh, business leaders as well need to step in and and help make their businesses more sustainable based on renewable energy. And and that's going to be the way that we're going to try and reduce the amount of CO2 that we're pumping out into the atmosphere every year. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit. You've also written about a trend uh, you call the Trillion Sensor Society. What does that look like? Yeah, so it, it's the idea that we've we've been moving towards a, a world that, that's highly connected. So so we, we've mostly got smartphones in the world. Each of those has got 15 to 20 different sensors in them. We're now moving to infrastructure like cars and cities and homes, you know, Amazon Alexa and all these smart home devices, smart watches, wearables, all having sensors. So we're saying that within the next like three to five years, there's going to be a trillion sensors in the world surrounding us, catching information, everything from like cameras to audio devices um, to sensors for, for wind and rain and footfall traffic on, on busy high streets. And that's going to generate a huge amount of data, about 163 um, zettabytes of data every single year by 2025. That's the equivalent of a billion, billion high-definition movies. And, and that data is going to help us liberate operational efficiencies, um, new ways of looking at the world, new solutions and artificial intelligence laid over the top of that is going to really liberate new thoughts and new business models and a new way for the world to work. Is there a negative or a downside in having that level of sensor and that level of data and information being shared so freely? Yeah, absolutely. So we're hugely worried right now about privacy and the right to own your own data. Unfortunately, businesses, uh, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon and, and a number of other large tech players have, have standardized the model of capturing your data and monetizing that. Now we have to break out of that. And that even companies like Microsoft are looking at new ways of giving us back ownership so that we can profit from data if we choose to let it uh, go out into a commercial space as well. All right. Uh, business planning is also something that you've written about and are looking at into the future. How do you think that will change? Yeah, so businesses are going to become more automated. Some of the more low-level, you know, drudge work tasks, you know, building spreadsheets and, and writing reports and, and doing back-office tasks like accounting are going to be revolutionized through automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Uh, and, and so business is going to change drastically from that automation perspective. But also, uh, businesses are going to break down the hierarchies within their businesses. The, the idea that you have a CEO, VPs, directors, managers, all the way down to people at the, the, the bottom of the rung doing the work is going to break and, and it's going to become a lot more flat society. We're already seeing a lot of businesses like Zappos and Kyocera down in Japan and others sort of break those models, look at innovation in a completely new way. And when you empower every single part of the organization from the very bottom of, of the, the hierarchy as it stands today, all the way through to the top, we, we liberate creativity and freedom of thought. And that innovation is why we hire people and giving them tasks to do and telling them to sit in a bucket and to be in with an imaginary structure kills their innovation. So we're headed towards this exciting new world of, of creativity and innovation if business leaders start to embrace this new way of thinking. It's a big if though, isn't it? Because generally people who are in positions of power don't like to give that up. Yeah, so my work is about taking people from what is how we work today to what if, entertaining the possibility that the world can be different, that we can actually get more benefit by working differently. So 
most of my work is going into large and small organizations, startups, tech companies, and, and, and transportation companies and other industries to say, look at what if, what if we... What if we make a change? What if we um, tell the story a little differently? And that's the beginning of the journey um, that I take them on in their organization. Over the years, they will change. And over the years, they'll say huge benefits delivered by thinking differently and operating differently. All right. One other one I wanted to touch on with you, geoengineering. And you're talking mm-hmm. about this one creating controversy. What do you think that will look like? Yeah, so, you know, we we started this conversation by talking about climate change and CO2 in the atmosphere. Geoengineering is the idea that we can take CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, and and remove that. So ultimately, the the parts per million can go down globally eventually, uh, and and we can also cool down the planet. It's hugely controversial because it's really difficult to do. There's companies in British Columbia, like Carbon Engineering up in Squamish, that, that sequester carbon, turn it into clean burning fuel for large industries like shipping or, or, or aircraft or whatever. And, and that could be really, really powerful. But to be able to do that on, on a huge scale uh, will take trillions of dollars and, and thousands of, of the processing plants that it's, it's already kind of piloting right now. So it's controversial because it's a big hope and it's like, oh, no, maybe we can just point, point the, these magical technologies to take this carbon out of the air and we're going to be able to solve um, the, the global warming by taking CO2 out of, out of the the atmosphere, whereas it's controversial because fossil fuel companies are stepping in to um, promote and to, to support these companies, and they're using it as a bit of a, a greenwash on their own operations. So, so that's one side of it. Another side of it is that there's uh, researchers, um, places like Harvard, actually looking at, at spraying aerosols into the atmosphere to be able to cool it down. And, uh, mm. and when you start to mess with Mother Nature a little bit like that, you're going to see effects happening around the world. You know, complexity theory sort of says that, you know, if a butterfly flaps its wings in Asia, it causes hurricanes uh, in another part of the world. So we have to be careful of this. It's going to be part of a a new solution of sequestering carbon, but it's not going to be the absolute solution that a lot of people are starting to talk about it being. All right. Uh, Very interesting predictions. Uh, And if people want to to learn more, they can check out your website, nicholasbadminton.com. Nicholas, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure. Well, here's a question. Is the United States on the brink of a revolution? This is a question being asked on uh, a website, theconversation.com. Very interesting question. Uh, The explanation as to why the question is being asked, uh, perhaps even more interesting. Uh, Serbulent Turan is an instructor in political science and public scholarship coordinator at the University of British Columbia and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you've written about this. So I guess short answer, what is the answer to that question? Well, it's hard to know. But the answer is this. If it were to happen, the way we would explain why it had happened is exactly the conditions on the ground in the U.S. right now. And, and so walk us through some of those. What are the conditions you see that would lead to that? So it's very hard to generalize these things because all revolutions are unique. But were we to try to do this, the first thing we would look at would be economic inequality. And it should be in such tremendous scale that it would be very obvious that it is unfair, that it would be very obvious that it cannot be helped. The second thing that adds to it is a conviction by a large number of the populace. It doesn't have to be everybody. It doesn't even have to be a majority. But I would still argue that that's the case in the U.S. A conviction that it's not going to get better. 
because the leaders, the elite, the political rulers are uninterested in making it better for the large number of uh, people who are suffering from this inequality. So a combination of these two, a massive economic inequality and the conviction by the population that it's just not going to get better, eventually leads people to seek alternatives in relatively marginalized, um, more radical venues. And this is exactly what we see in the U.S. right now, the rise of fascism, massive economic inequality, a conviction that the political class is not going to help with this. Uh, Even though we have a leader in the United States uh, that claims uh, he's done so much to bring people out of poverty and done so much when it comes to employment and the economy. Yes, well, he does claim all kinds of things, doesn't he? Um, But there is one truth to what he says, that unemployment is at an all-time low. And this is one of the misleading statistics that we see often. Unemployment does not translate into a level of comfort for people. Unemployment simply means that there are a lot of people working. And so this is one of the stats that we can actually see easily. There are more Americans now who have to hold more jobs than ever before just to make ends meet. So someone has a full-time job and a part-time job on top of it, and still they're having a hard time um, paying their bills and putting food on the table. And when you say uh, revolution, how do you define that or what does that look like? So um, we do see lots of protests, and this is the beginning of, let's say, the scale of um, public discontent. People just speaking to public authority, to political authority, saying, we're upset about this one particular thing. We're upset about this other thing. For instance, what we saw in the U.S., the March for Our Lives, was a lot of people saying, we're upset about the gun violence. We're upset about the gun laws in the country. Um, A revolution would be at the other end of the scale where uh, the political structure and institutions are completely revolutionized. They're taken down, they're dismantled, and a new system comes forth. And there does not have to be any kind of positive connotations to the word. I mean, the Iranian revolution was a revolution um, that brought about a theocracy. And so is there a connection then, and you mentioned some of the protests, and we've seen some huge protests, whether it is about gun law, uh, whether it's about climate change, there have been huge. Is there a connection, do you think, with the size of the protests and whether or not that leads to a revolution? Well, um, there is. It's not a very um, easy to, to, let's say, quantify way, but a protest, as I said, is effectively a large number of people telling to political authority, we're upset about this one particular thing. We're upset about this other thing. And as the population starts getting more frustrated, we would see more protests attended by more people, which is, again, exactly what we're seeing. The number of protests in the last 10, 15 years in the U.S. have quadrupled in number, and they have almost over quadrupled in the number of people that attend them. The largest protests in U.S. history, the last three, are all in the last five years. Um, so the protests increase in number and in the number of people that attend them until the population becomes convinced that this achieves nothing. Because protesting, as I said, is an attempt to communicate to the government that we're upset with this one particular issue. And if the protesters become convinced that this achieves nothing, then the next venue would be either apathy, as in I'm uninterested in politics because it never changes, or actual insurrection, which is what we see in several places in the world right now, like in Chile or in Hong Kong. 
Absolutely. So, it, but I think that's where uh, there might be some uh, disconnect or, or somebody saying, do you think what's happening in Hong Kong or do you think something like the Arab Spring could happen in the United States? And my guess is uh, a lot of people would probably say no. No, and they wouldn't be wrong. I would, I would hope that it wouldn't happen because going through a revolution is a terrible, terrible thing. Um, one thing that we would look in these cases is established political institutions that help people navigate politics. So what we see in Hong Kong is exactly this point that people are asking for more and better representation. They're precisely asking that, look, all the things that we're doing, we have no voice at all in the government. What happened in the Arab Spring is another good example. What happened in Egypt, for instance, when they overthrew the government of Hosni Mubarak that was ruling the country for over 30 years, the population realized that they have absolutely no way to connect to the political sphere other than just protesting and insurrecting. But what happened in Tunisia, which was another Arab Spring country, there were actual political parties from all over the political spectrum, from Islamists to social democrats, that banded together, took charge of the political void, and navigated the country out of it. So what we saw in Tunisia was a revolution. The dictator fled, and now it's a democratic country, and it was navigated peacefully by existing political institutions. So my hope would be that if there were to be a political explosion in the U.S., which, again, as I said, if that were to happen 15 years down the line, we would point at all the things that we're talking about now and say, this is why it happened. If there were to be a political explosion, I would hope that existing political institutions would help um, the population navigate out of it peacefully, let's say. How much of a role do you think the next or the upcoming election in the United States could play? Oh, that is a big question. Um, It could play a big role. Um, um, It is hard to say uh, what would cause an explosion. It is hard to say what would trigger an insurrection at one point. Uh, Political elections are, by definition, uh, milestones where you know we ex- everybody holds their breath and we look at what's going to happen so the results might be uh, might be tweaked in such a way that there would be lots of political unrest and how the institution and others are going to respond to it uh, might come into it but generally us has become really really good with holding elections navigating elections and going through it. it it's become sort of a ritual which is of course what it is at the end of the day um, so it remains to be seen. It's very hard to speak, certainly, about these things. And do you think there's, is there a positive outcome possible uh, if the United States goes down that road? <sighs> yes, of course. So um, the revolutions, are that's a double-edged sword, definitely. On the one hand, going through a revolution is a terrible, horrible thing. It's never good for anybody who experiences it. It's, it's a lot of chaos, a um, lot, of, lot of suffering. On the other hand... Um, lots of the political rights, lots of the social rights that we have right now, if not almost all of them, are results of revolutions. I mean, here in Canada, the the two guiding principles of our government, liberty and equality, is the result of the French Revolution. But the people who went through the French Revolution, that was the period we now call as the terror. That was 50 years of chaos. Uh, The terror was three years, but after that, 50 years of chaos, regimes coming and going, all kinds of difficulties for everybody on the ground, but now we have liberty and equality. So would a good come out of a revolution? Yes, but in the very long run. 
All right. Uh, it is a very interesting piece. Uh, Serbian, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it this morning. Uh, appreciate your time uh, and uh, thank you again so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, a survey done by BC notaries uh, has some interesting findings. So, so you're probably not too surprised to hear that a lot of first-time buyers leaned on the bank of mom and dad a little bit to get into the housing market. But it's also the numbers of people that are actually buying in uh, what has been described as a softened market that might be a bit surprising. So let's bring in Dan Bovere. He is a BC notary, also president of the BC Notaries Association of of BC. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what do the numbers tell us? This is quite a detailed survey, uh, 193 BC notaries uh, answering the questions. Uh, let's start off with the numbers themselves for buyers and that uh, saw about the same or decreased level. Was that a surprise at all? Um, no, not really. I think the um, the market um, certainly at the beginning of the year was definitely uh, softer. Uh, definitely a little slower, and then certainly as uh, summer uh, came in and and into fall, things started to pick up for everyone. And walk us through exactly what a BC notary does as far as the home buying process. Well, once the um, the purchase contract is completed, um, at that point, that's really when we take over. Um, our job is to um, organize the details of the contract, um, do the final work on all the financing. Um, make sure the proper insurance is in place, uh, strata documentation is in place if it's a strata, and then really um, on the closing day, handle all the funds, uh, all the registrations, and and complete the transaction as contemplated by the the contract. All right. Are there some areas where notaries are seeing people uh, maybe not anticipating uh, what they're they're actually getting into, whether it's uh, unpaid taxes, uh, other uh, types of things that come into the cost uh, above and beyond the actual price of the home? Yeah, Yeah, those are a lot of those things, those unpaid taxes are are things that we have to look at. The government has brought in in the last few years new things around speculation taxes and empty home taxes, these types of things. So one of the things that we're advising clients now is to make sure that if they have plans, you know, to move in for a short period of time and then maybe to move on to another property, rent this one out, these sorts of things, that they understand what the rules are around a home being empty for, you know, too long a period of time that might trigger a tax down the road. So these are just extra things that we're, um, you know, having to explain to clients, generally not to first-time home buyers because, you know, Predominantly speaking, first-time home buyers are buying in to live in a home. This is going to be their principal residence. Right. And, if, and as long as they're going to live in it, uh, I mean, if you were buying, say, a condo or a home that had been empty, th- that tax doesn't transfer over to you, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and you know, it's really the responsibility of the sellers. So the, the different taxes at different levels of government have sort of different mechanisms on how they work. So it's just our job to make sure that, that, that everything is, is the way that it's supposed to be when the new buyer takes over. Uh, the bank of mom and dad, we hear about that quite often. This survey yeah. uh, found that first-time buyers, not a huge surprise, uh, they are in fact getting help from that uh, source of revenue. Yep. yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the one of the things that, that sort of, I don't know, if it, if it hurt first-time home buyers or certainly made things a little more challenging, you know, was the, the tightening of mortgage rules. Um, it became uh, harder to qualify to get a mortgage in the last few years. And, and that's, you know, federal government, you know, brought in some new rules around that. So, the only way that um, that they've been able to qualify a lot of first-time home buyers, because first-time home buyers predominantly rely on on mortgage financing the most, they've either had to increase the amount that they've had to put down in order to qualify. And to do that, you know, there's not a lot of places you can 
sort of go to get some extra money. And generally speaking, it's the bank of mom and dad. So we weren't surprised at all to see, um, you know, more first time buyers having to get, you know, larger gifts from their parents to be able to still buy the place that they originally wanted to buy because the mortgage rules uh, were tightened up. And when we're talking about that, it sounds so so, uh, casual when we talk, say, the bank of mom and dad. But are there things that people need to keep in mind, especially, I suppose, if the idea is that that money will be paid back in that it is kind of a contract, even though we're talking about family? Yeah, that's right. What has to be really clear is that um, it has to be determined whether or not that money is a gift or it's a loan. And it can't be, you know, in my, you know, my opinion, it can't be a kind of a gift loan. (laughs) <laughs> you know, well, it's a gift on this day, but if things, you know, if you if you tick me off tomorrow, it becomes a loan. But if everything goes good, then it's a gift. It's like, you know, certainly the bank um, wants to know uh, where down payments are coming from, and they're not really too keen on seeing that it's loans. They really, most for the most part, want to see that it's a gift. So that has to be very clear, and that has to be set up. So these are some of the things that we, you know, we work through with first-time home buyers and 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 sometimes their parents at the same time. Yeah, always good to to have that conversation beforehand right. or long That's before right. that. Um, what about the the idea of on the amount of the down payment? Uh, I know notaries uh, responded on that question as well. Uh, wh- what were the findings as far as less than twenty five percent, or about what people were actually putting down? Yeah, I think that would just. I think what that speaks to is just sort of an overall trend. You know, is is you know, it's 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 we're we're trying to figure out you know how much of this money is coming from themselves and how much of this is coming from the from the parents and what we've seen is that it feels like or it seems like a little more money has been coming from the parent side and again we think that's to do with you know qualifying it's it's tougher to get that mortgage they need a little bit extra down and so if their down payment originally was say a forty thousand dollar down is what they needed now all of a sudden they need fifty thousand dollars down to make it work where are they getting that you know that extra ten thousand from you know they're getting it as a gift from their parents so that's 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 the trend that that we saw, which wasn't surprising. No, uh, it also uh, takes a look at what's happening in the Fraser Valley because I think we tend to to think that the prices are still a little bit lower in the Fraser Valley. There might be more of an opportunity for first time buyers to get into the market. Uh, nine out of ten notaries, uh, from what I'm seeing here, uh, said that yes, but first time buyers are going into strata properties and still saying though that housing prices are an issue. Yeah, and I think you know. I think housing prices are, are in the, at least in, in the greater Vancouver area, are, are always going to be an issue. Um, it's expensive to live here. There's just, no, there's just no two ways about it, and that is likely not going to change anytime soon. Um, so I think if you're a first-time home buyer and getting into the market is, is really something that you want to do, it's, 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 a, it's an important goal for you, then, yeah, I think you have to look outside of GVRD and, and into the valley or you know, even into the Okanagan or onto Vancouver Island or something like that to find something that's that's more affordable. It, it just is. It is so expensive in a in a world class city like Vancouver. So, going from this survey or the, the takeaway from this, what would be the main piece of advice for first time buyers or or the thing that you see first time buyers maybe surprised by or overlook? Yeah, you know, it, owning a home is is more than just making a, a mortgage payment and a, and paying your taxes. Um, there's a lot of other costs that come into it, and uh, and I think first-time home buyers really just have to sit down and do their homework, talk to other people that own homes, their parents, and say, you know, what's the real cost of owning this home? You know, well, once the strata fees are in and the water bill is paid and the taxes are paid and the mortgage payment is paid, and 
you've got some repair bills and you know what happens when the you know when the fridge packs it in all these types of things <clears throat> and really being sure and clear that this is the route that you want to go down because you know home ownership is is very expensive Absolutely. And I think that's a good point in that we, we get caught up in the mortgage and the price of the mortgage or the the sticker price right. of the home. That, that's right. But there are so many other issues as well or other other areas where it's going to cost money. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just, you know, a part of the, the, the mortgage brokers and the bank's job is to sit there and make a determination that a person can really, you know, afford to buy this 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 home and they've got parameters that they look at. Well, that's important. But also, I think you as yourself, if you're going to make this purchase, have to sit down and really take a hard look at all of the numbers and in, in your employment situation and how all these things look to be sure that, you know, you're not going to get into something and then a year later be going, oh, you know, I wish I'd never done this. And is that something people can reach out and talk to a notary about beforehand? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're in negotiations, you're looking at buying a, a home you know, you're going to need us at, you know, you're going to need us at some point during the transaction. So I always say better to engage us earlier than later, come in, have a frank conversation with us and, uh, and see if we can provide any extra or additional insight. Um, and then obviously, if you go ahead with the purchase, we're going to be there to, to make sure everything comes together at the end. All right. Good advice. Uh, Daniel Bover, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Great being on the show.